If you turn with me now, please, to John chapter 5. I'm going to look this morning at verses uh, 39 and 40 of this passage. John chapter 5 and at verse 39. You are searching the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You often hear the accusation that's leveled against Christians and their faith that the Bible's teaching is not really based on evidence or that the faith of God's people, the faith that we profess, is not based on what scientifically you could call evidence, something that's been substantiated uh, by some scientific method or other. And therefore the conclusion from such a, uh, such a views is that it's a bit foolish and silly really to commit your life to Jesus when you really have no evidence that the things that are said in the Gospels or in the Bible are indeed true about him or anything else that you find revealed there, especially those things that have a remarkable supernatural um, uh, appearance to them. Well, Jesus actually faced very similar questions very similar accusations, very similar challenges to prove his own claims. And indeed you find that in this chapter here where the Jews, the leadership of the Jews especially, were actually seeking uh, reasons to put him to death because they thought, they thought that he was in fact uh, challenging the role of God and their view of the law, the law of Moses, and the way that they sought to establish that law as a basis for righteousness. And as they came to deal with Jesus, Jesus met them as they asked him and challenged him, well, what sign will you give us? What evidence can you produce that you are indeed the promised Christ? That you are who you claim to be? You've made yourself equal with God. So where is the evidence for this? What can you produce that will substantiate your claims. That's really what their questions amount to as you find them challenging Jesus in these chapters really in John, not just in this passage, but the chapters around this as well. And Jesus, just in the way that Scripture requires, produces two or three witnesses. And he puts before them the fact that there is evidence. There are witnesses, but the problem they have is they're not prepared to accept their veracity they're not prepared to accept the truth of these witnesses. He speaks, for example, about John the Baptist. John the Baptist as was sent into the world to bear testimony to the truth. He says he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And yet they didn't come to Jesus, though John the Baptist pointed Jesus out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the promised Messiah. But more than that, he points to the works that Jesus himself was doing. Jesus himself says that um, his father they had never seen, um, and yet the works that I do bear testimony. The works that the father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the father has sent me. These works, these miracles, these signs, as John refers to them throughout his gospel, they were testimony as to who Jesus is. 
But the fact is, they refuse to accept that testimony to be valid. And along with that, if not even above that, Jesus mentioned the Scriptures, which he equates to the Word of the Father. The Scriptures bear testimony about me, he says in verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Of course, at this time, it's the Old Testament, the Scriptures that he refers to, the New Testament that not yet come into being. But the Scriptures of the Old Testament, the Word of God, the revelation of God, which they had, which they'd had for centuries. And this is what he's saying. They bear testimony about me, yet you refuse to come to me, that you might have life. It wasn't lack of evidence that was their problem. It was an unwillingness to accept the evidence because it didn't meet with their own expectations, with their own prejudices, with their own mindset. That was their problem, not lack of evidence. And the crucial word, the crucial, the crucial question really for us today, when you meet with these, these objections to the gospel, objections to your faith, to your belief in Christ, to your view of the Bible, the first thing really to take from all of that, the first question to ask is not what does the Bible say? That's important. But it's not the most important thing. That's not where you begin by asking, what does the Bible say? You ask first question, what is the Bible? And what is its purpose? Is it God's revelation or not? Is it the word of God or is it something else? That's the crucial foundational question. What is the Bible to me today? Because unless the Bible is indeed the very word of God, is indeed God's revelation to himself, whatever it says cannot quite have that divine authority that it has if it is indeed, as we say, it is the word of God as it testifies to itself to be. That's where you begin with your response to the world's objections. That you don't have evidence for what you believe. You have ample evidence, you hold on to that evidence, you go especially to the Bible, you ask yourself the question, what is this book? What is its purpose? Where did it come from? How did it come about? And therefore, you, from that starting point, you try and deal with the objections that people have. Because you have to take them back somewhere or other to what Scripture is, to this being God's divine truth. So let's look at two things that come as we uh, mention that point. It really takes us into the text fairly smoothly. Because here is Jesus saying to them, You search, it's the present ongoing tense, you, you are searching the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. So he begins with, uh, the text really speaks about a commendable activity, studying the Bible. A commendable activity studying the Bible. But secondly, Jesus speaks about a crucial omission, not coming to himself. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may or might have life. These are the two points and a number of issues under each of those as we follow them through. 
So first of all here is a commendable activity. Notice what he's saying. You are searching the scriptures. In this instance, this is the better translation. It can be an imperative. The AV translated it that way. Search the scriptures as if this was a command that Jesus was giving for something to be done that they weren't yet doing. In fact, what Jesus is saying is, you are actually already doing this, and you're searching these scriptures, these Old Testament writings, you're searching them, and uh, therefore he's not calling on them to begin something they're not doing. They're already in the process of searching the scriptures. They know, they have a view about the scriptures, they have a view about them being from God. And therefore they're looking into the scriptures so that they can actually find eternal life because as we'll see, they are of the view that in these scriptures they have eternal life. Eternal life is located in them. But before we come to that point, this word that Jesus is using, John is using here, search, you search the scriptures, it's a word that really uh, includes the idea of very diligent search. It's not something casual they were doing. They were not searching the scriptures as if it was just an interesting novel. Nothing against writing, reading interesting novels. But the point is, the word that he's using uh, indicates a diligent study. An actual study, a searching in a studious way. They were going about it seriously. They were taking the scriptures seriously. They weren't treating them casually. It wasn't something they were doing occasionally wasn't just something they felt like doing from time to time. No, he was saying, you are searching. You are going on doing this searching of the scriptures. You're studying them. You're coming to them with a serious mind. That makes its own point to us, doesn't it? What is the Bible to me today? Just because I happen to stand in a pulpit regularly and preach the word of God and take messages from the word of God and expound the word of God doesn't mean I personally for my own spiritual well-being I'm actually diligently studying the scriptures it's one of uh, uh, the dangers that as preachers of the gospel there are a couple of other preachers here today and they'll acknowledge this I'm sure that one of the dangers we face is we study the Bible in order to preach and not for our own spiritual feeding you have to have both as a minister. But that's, by the way, what's important. But what it's saying to us is that our searching of Scripture, our use of the Bible, has to be the kind of diligent study that leads us to Jesus, that gives us more access to an understanding of God's salvation in Jesus, and as we'll see, to the person of Jesus himself in particular. We all have, I'm sure, in our homes, more than one copy of the Bible. You know, there are people in the world today that would uh, really, as, as we say, give their right hand for a copy of the Bible. They don't have access to a complete set of the scriptures in their own language. That's why there's so much translation work going on by various agencies that want to produce the scriptures in the language of people that, uh, people's own language that they can understand the teaching of Scripture. And, and here we are with so many copies of the Bible. How many copies of the Bible are in your own home today? I don't know how many are in, in, in my home, um, but there certainly are many copies of the Scriptures. But what are they to us? How regularly do we study this Bible? 
And are we like these Jews, just studying it because we know it should, it's something we should be doing, and therefore we do it? Is it because we realize, yes, this is such an important book, but are we looking for Jesus in it? Are we coming to the Bible every time we come to read it, looking for and praying and expecting to meet with God himself? Because that's how it should be for us. That's how it should be for us today. Isn't that why we've come to church this morning? Because we want to meet with this God. We want to come to another uh, step in our conviction that this Bible is indeed the basis of my life for righteous life, for moral life, for eternal life and that this Bible is the Word of God and through this Word of God I come to know Himself and I come to know Himself more and more. Isn't that our conviction today? Isn't that why you're here today? Because you realize that through the Scriptures and through knowing Jesus you have eternal life. So they were searching the scriptures and this was their conviction because he says you think that in them you have eternal life. And some commentators say that um, they, this, this really was something that Jesus was accusing them of not holding to. Uh, that they were not really persuaded that in them you have eternal life. Um, but I think when you, when you look at what he's saying and what follows on, what Jesus is saying is you are searching the scriptures because you're convinced that these scriptures actually lead you to eternal life. That eternal life is associated with these scriptures as the scriptures of God. So they were right up to a point. Scripture is the word of God. Scripture is indeed uh, in them. They do have they did have eternal life as they used the scripture. Scripture is God's revelation of himself. We have to actually hold on to that and be persuaded of that because, as I said at the beginning, you'll find many objections to that today because, for example, people will say to you, well, Christians are a people who follow a certain creed, a certain script, a certain set of scriptures, but that makes them no different to Muslims. They have their own scriptures or Sikhs, they have their own scriptures, or any other religious organization or group that have written scriptures of some kind as the basis of their ideas, the basis of their thoughts, their conclusions, their worldview. People will say that to you. Christians are no different. Your, your scriptures are okay for you, but there are others equivalent to that. Well, there aren't. Because this is really what is true of the scriptures that we have of this Bible. This is Christ's verdict on it. In them you are persuaded, you are convinced, you have eternal life. So up to that point they were right. In them they had eternal life. God had revealed eternal life to them. How they would have and obtain eternal life and possess eternal life. But, that's just one side of it, they were right up to a point, but that's where they stopped. Because they were wrong to leave it at that, because they were just uh, then leaving matters to their own obedience, weren't they? Because if you think that eternal life, simply through following the teachings of Scripture, even of the Bible as God's Scriptures, then we're not going far enough. We're actually mistaken. And not only are we mistaken, but we're seriously mistaken. Because that then 
means you're falling back on your own obedience, on your own ability. If salvation is through the level through which we actually obey the Scriptures, then we're legalists. We're back in the situation of the scribes and the Pharisees that met with Jesus and objected to his teachings. That's where they were actually coming short or going wrong. They had a high view of the Scriptures, but they hadn't actually known God through them as in Jesus Christ. You see in verse, uh, you go to chapter 6, um, you'll find in verse 28 of chapter 6, where again Jesus is, is addressing them there and pointing out their problem. Um, truly, truly, he's saying to them, because you saw the signs, you're seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Um, and then they said to him in verse 28, What must we do to be doing the works of God? See, that's where they're going wrong. What must we do? What must our activity be so that we will actually have eternal life? So that we, we will be doing the works of God? And you notice how Jesus answered it in verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. This is the work of God. Not that by your own obedience, in compliance with a set of rules or a creed or scriptures, you earn eternal life. No, he says, doing the works of God begins with believing in the one God sent, in this Jesus, in this person. That's where the Jews here, the readers were coming short. And that's why he says here, in the text that we have today you are searching the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that's why he added yet you refuse to come to me you see people are mistaken when they say to us well you Christians fine you can live your own life the way you um, um, you determine to live your own life as Christians. You have the Bible as your textbook. You are a people of that particular book of the Scriptures. Your relationship is with that script, with that book, with that creed. Just like Muslims have a relationship with the Quran. That's what characterizes you Christians. You're really essentially no different. Because what makes you Christians is you have a relationship with the Bible. No, it's not. What makes you a Christian is your relationship with a person, with a living person, with the living person of Christ as he is today in heaven, having died and risen from the dead and ascended to glory. That's today your relationship. That's what makes you a Christian essentially through being born again by the power of the Spirit of God. What does that do? It brings you into a living relationship with Jesus. Of course the Bible is valuable to, a, to you as a Christian of course it's a foundational text, if you like, for the way of life that you want to live as a Christian. But what this Bible has done is bring you to Christ. And your relationship today is with Jesus, or you're not a Christian. At least not in the way that we should be, inwardly and spiritually. And that's how it is with ourselves, isn't it? When somebody asks you, are you a Christian? You don't respond by saying, yes, I believe the Bible. Somebody asks you, are you a Christian? What do you say? Yes, I know Jesus Christ as my Savior. 
I have a living relationship with Jesus. That's why I'm a Christian. That's why makes, I'm, what makes me a Christian. Remember, one time going to visit an old lady in town who's no longer in this world, died many years ago. Uh, but she was an excellent Christian woman, considerable age at that time. And I went to see her uh, one evening, spent a wonderful evening with her. And I asked her, would she just give an account of how she came to know the Lord of her conversion? Well, she said, I knew the Bible, I went to church, I did all of that. I said, what were you actually doing? What would you describe yourself like at that time? Well, she said, it was in Gaelic. She said, those who have Gaelic will follow this. Which really means I was turning the pages. She was reading her Bible. I was turning the pages. But I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know him for myself, she said. Until God blessed to me, John 14, verse 1. You believe in God, believe also in me. And that's what changed her life. It wasn't just her relationship now merely with the Bible, though that continued, but it was in a new way because she had a relationship with Jesus himself. What is the Bible to me and to you today? What is the studying of the Bible to us? Is it so that we will know Jesus more? Do you know Jesus through this Bible? Is it more for you and for me than just occasionally turning the pages? Is it more than just a serious-minded attention to the Bible as a book that you respect and even consider as God's Word? But has it for you led to knowing Jesus for yourself. Well, that's what it should be about. That's what the preaching of the gospel today commends to you. To know himself. To come to himself. And that's what our second point's about. They were engaged in a commendable activity in studying the scriptures. But he says, yet you refuse to come to me. Now take with you the previous parts of, uh, of, of the text. You, you are searching the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They were right about that. And it is they that bear witness about me. And of course he was right in that. And he's adding that to the, to the number of testimonies to himself. So all of that he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They were stopping short of coming to Jesus himself, of accepting Christ himself as the Messiah, as the Savior. What does coming to Jesus involve? Well, in the brief time I've got left, two things. You might be here today and thinking now, well, fine, he said that I must go beyond just reading my Bible and treating it with respect, that it must be something that leads to my knowing Jesus of myself. But what does that involve? What, is it, what does it mean to come to Jesus as Jesus himself is saying that you will not come to me that you might have life? Well, two things. Believing and leaving. You notice in verse 38 here, um, how he's saying to those that are listening to him there, the Father has sent me, borne witness to himself. Verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. In other words, when you take all of that together, 
believing in Jesus and coming to Jesus amount really to the same thing. Because when you come to believe in Jesus, what you're doing essentially is entrusting yourself to him. You're entrusting your whole person to him. You're entrusting your present life to him, your future life to him. And indeed you're taking what your past life was about and you're saying, Lord, this is what I present to you and I want you to have your control and your care of it in its entirety. You are entrusting yourself to him. That's really at the very heart of faith, of believing. And that's essentially in, a, in, a, in the same way as the same thing as essentially coming to Jesus. You come to him personally, spiritually. You entrust yourself to him. And what Jesus is saying, this word refuse that you have here, uh, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. That's actually better than the AV, I think, because the AV has yet you will not come to me that you might have life. And that's really what the text is saying. If you look at the word that's used there in the original language of the text, it's actually saying you will not. Now, of course, it means you refuse to come. But the use of the word will is important because it really says to us the problem is in our will. Problem's not in our knowledge as such. The problem is not in our understanding as such. The problem is in our will. We will not come to him. Our will would not accept, will not accept him. We will not willingly have him, even though we might respect him, even though we might know that the Bible is all about him. This is what he's saying to them. You are searching the scriptures. You think that in the scriptures you're right. In them you have eternal life. And it is indeed in the scriptures. They bear testimony about me. But you will not come to me. Your will is closed against coming to me against accepting me. It's a deliberate and knowing rejection of the light that has come in Jesus. You go back to chapter 3, the famous passage with Nicodemus. And uh, it's important we read on beyond verse 16, of course, um, where he says there that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, a, uh, have eternal life. But then you see as you go down through that, verse 19, this he says is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Whoever does what is true in verse 21 comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Now what Jesus is pointing out to there is exactly the same as you find in verse 5 and diff in chapter 5 in different language. You refuse to come to me. You will not come to me. The light has come into the world but people choose darkness. Now if you choose something it means that you know something about what you're choosing. It means that you're choosing it instead of choosing something else, something of an alternative. So when Jesus is saying that you're choosing light, that they were choosing light rather than darkness, uh, darkness rather than light rather, or on the other hand, if you choose light rather than darkness, it means that you actually, you actually know something about both. And you make your choice. I'm not suggesting that it's not through God's Spirit that we come to be born again, as he said to Nicodemus. But we have to be faced, and the gospel 
challenges us to face up to the choice that you and I must make. Do I use my Bible to bring me to Jesus, to know Jesus? Or put it this way, do I want to know Jesus? Or is it just that I want to know my Bible's teaching? Do I want to know the Bible as much as I can, but stop short of knowing Jesus himself? That's what this passage is confronting us with, with this choice, this important choice. And so we have to come to Jesus, believe in Jesus. Now you see, Moses, uh, you can see near the end of this chapter, Moses was their hero, because Moses represented the law. And they were actually saying, the law says this. Of course, they had added a lot to the law themselves, a lot of minute details that they had no right to add to the law that's another point. Let's leave it there. But this is what Jesus is saying to him. Um, here's another one who actually bears testimony to me. Even Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Verse 45. They were saying, we don't want this Jesus. He is completely at odds with Moses, with the law, with the teaching of Moses. Give us Moses. Give us the teaching of Moses. Leave us to the teaching of Moses. Leave us to our own obedience to the law of God as Moses uh, gave it to us. He said, well... If you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, he's saying to them, you're making a great thing of Moses and of the law. But if you really understood that law, you would accept me. Because it's about me that Moses wrote. And today that's so crucial for ourselves today as well. It's not about a mere compliance with the law, with the Ten Commandments, with a creed, with a set of teachings, even with the whole Bible. It's about Jesus and our relationship with him and knowing him and following him and trusting in him and entrusting yourself to him. And that means, of course, that we have to leave the position that we had coming into the world, our relationship with, with sin, with self, what, what we prefer, our own choices, our own preferences, our own prejudices, which are natural to us. That's what he was saying to these people. Our natural choice is Moses. It's the law. It's the legalism. It's, it's actually relying on our own ability, our own obedience. The Bible tells us that's one of the things we have to be delivered from and saved from and we do that by leaving that behind by leaving any thoughts of our own ability to be saved by that ability and coming to Jesus and casting ourselves on the ability that's in him who has already died the death of the cross in obedience to God and to his law the best illustration of all of that of course is in John in Luke chapter 15 and the parable of the prodigal son. I'm going to refer to except to say this. These two aspects of what we're saying today are found in the prodigal. He left home. He made his choice. He found himself in trouble. And when he began to realize that he was really in trouble, his first thought was not to go back to his father. No, he preferred his own choice. He preferred his own mind. He preferred his own ability. So he went and joined himself to someone who gave him employment and the feeding of pigs and then he realized I'm in real trouble I can't manage this on my own 
I'm not in charge of my own life. I just can't. I will arise and I will go to my father. He went back to his father. And his father threw his arms around him. That's an, an illustration of the love of Jesus. And it was written, it was spoken contrary to what scribes and Pharisees were saying. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, of course he does. That's what he's in the world to do. That's what he came to do. That's what he's still doing. That's why through the gospel he's saying today to me, Will you come to me? Have you yet come to me? Have you come to know the scriptures as something important, as a channel to bring you to the person of Christ himself? There is a famous altarpiece. An altarpiece is a work of art which uh, um, is used at certain times in, in rituals, and particularly in more Roman Catholic or Orthodox um, church backgrounds. But there's a, a famous one in a church, in a museum actually nowadays in Colmar, which is in the region of Alsace in France. It was uh, painted by uh, uh, an artist called Matthias Grunwald with some, another artist as well with him but he was the main artist and it was painted between 1512 and 1516 it's hugely valuable um, but that, that altarpiece is the centre part of it if you think of it in three pieces centre part of it has the main painting on each side of it there are other uh, paintings that are sometimes opened out sometimes closed but the main part of it is a painting of Christ on the cross whatever you think of Paintings of Christ on the cross. I'm just using this as an illustration for the moment. And the work was first of all uh, commissioned for uh, hospital work, um, which was uh, dealing with uh, those who suffered from the plague and whose bodies and skin had great blotches on them and all the results of, the, of that plague at the time. And the image of that Christ in the painting is one where he himself in his, his body is seen to have these, 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 uh, uh, this disease, this, this uh, plague-type sores all over his body. And the reason that was painted um, primarily was to show the patients who were suffering from that that Jesus understood their afflictions. Whatever you think of this way of doing it, it's, it's a magnificent piece of art. It does convey powerfully that message in its own terms that the Jesus that's represented there well understands what it is to be plagued, what it is to suffer, what it is to die, what it is to face all kinds of human conditions. But on the right side of the right-hand side of, of the, the figure on the cross is Jesus, of course. And then just to the right, as you look at it, is a picture of, or a painting of John the Baptist. And you can tell it's John the Baptist because, for one thing, his hand is stretched up and his index finger is like this, pointing to the cross to his right. Of course, that brings you to, to remember that this is the great testimony of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God, who is taking away the sin of the world. And essentially, what you see in that altarpiece, and in that central part of that altarpiece, and in that figure of John the Baptist with his hand and finger so prominent in that painting, that is what the Bible is telling you today. That's what the Bible is pointing out to you today. Behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. You know, if you ask the question, how am I reading my Bible? You can answer that with another question, and it's this. Have I come to Jesus? How am I reading my Bible? Have I come to Jesus? And that will tell you. Let's pray. Lord our God, our Father in heaven, we thank you today for the way in which salvation is presented to us in the gospel. We give thanks for the truthfulness of your word, for the way that we can depend upon it as reliable for our needs. We thank you especially that it brings to us that great message of eternal life. We pray today, Lord, that you would grant us the faith and the entrustment of ourselves to the living Saviour in order that we might be saved and that you might be glorified. Receive our thanks and be with us throughout the rest of this day. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now we're going to conclude our worship today singing in Psalm 119 in the Sing Psalms version Psalm 119 and from verse 17 that's on page 158 we'll sing the verses in that section to 24 do good to me and I will live your servant will obey your word open my eyes that I may see great wonders in your law O Lord I am a stranger on the earth. Do not hide your commands from me. Consumed with longing is my soul, because your your laws I yearn to see. These verses 17 to 24, to God's praise.
go to the door to my right this morning. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.